the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, Trump's team works with speed and professionalism. As he fumbles a presidential proclamation speech, we look at how red tape delayed U.S. response to the virus by weeks, and New York Times journalist Mara Gay speaks out after her massive mathematical blunder. Plus, the millennials' take on Gen Z's favorite app. I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome back to the 180 Cast. Welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we look at how people change their minds and try to bring some moral clarity out of all of the cultural confusion. I do not hold back here on this podcast. I tow no party lines, and my opinions are usually outside of the echo chamber. So if that triggers you, you should probably move to a different podcast. Thank you for joining me today. We do have so much to get to. Everything is canceled. Everything. Everything is canceled. This is beyond what I possibly thought would have happened when we first heard about the coronavirus. Disneyland is shut down for two weeks. This is insane. But before we get to all that, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by MyPillow. More about them in a little bit. And don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast catcher. I like Google Play. That is my podcast catcher of choice. A lot of people like Podbean or, you know, iHeartRadio or whatever it is that you listen to. Make sure that you're subscribed so that you know when new episodes are posted. So you can listen when everybody else is listening. And then you can give me your feedback at 323-999-1802 on the flip phone. You can leave a voicemail or you can text... I do hope that you use the voicemail because I love hearing from you. I love hearing your voice. Don't be shy. With that, let's go ahead and get into the top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about. It will top the list. Trump gave a speech from the Oval Office on Wednesday night. The Department of Homeland Security and other sources are now walking back some of the things that he said. And honestly, this is incredibly frustrating. Incredibly frustrating. And some of you who are big fans of the president, you know, this is just one of those times where we might not agree. I am laying this at the feet of the president. He's in charge. He should make sure that massive blunders like this aren't happening. Take a listen real quick. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. These restrictions will be adjusted subject to conditions on the ground. There will be exemptions for Americans who have undergone appropriate screenings. Okay, so the Department of Homeland Security released a letter clarifying this without necessarily calling out the president on saying something that was incorrect. They said this does not apply to legal permanent residents who may not be necessarily Americans, as they're not American citizens, and it does not apply to other individuals who are 
uh, identified in the proclamation, as well as immediate family members of U.S. citizens. That's the first thing that Trump sort of swung and missed on in his teleprompted speech, which makes you wonder, who is writing this stuff? Or is he really just wildly going off teleprompter? It didn't sound like that. It was very rhythmic the way that he was talking, which made me think that he was reading directly off of a teleprompter. I don't know. I mean, this is it's just a crap show. Here's the other thing. Here's the second thing that he got wrong regarding trade with the European Union, which might be one of the reasons why the stock market on Thursday dropped over 10%. And these prohibitions will not only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval. Anything coming from Europe to the United States is what we are discussing. These restrictions will also not apply to the United Kingdom. 30 minutes after the speech, Trump tweeted, Very important for all countries and businesses to know that trade will in no way be affected by the 30-day restriction on travel from Europe. The restriction stops people, not goods. Well, that would have been a wonderful thing to know in your presidential proclamation, President Trump. Who is writing this stuff for you and why is it so wildly incorrect? Where is the miscommunication happening? You've run businesses with thousands and thousands of people how is this still happening after three and a half years? It's just a crap show. I, I can't. This is not the time to be tweeting and tweeting your corrections to things that you have previously bungled. People are panicked. Okay. Not only is there no hand sanitizer and Clorox wipes at any of the grocery stores that you're going to go to, but a lot of these Costco's are being totally cleaned out, empty shelves and all, because people are panicked. And this is not helping, okay? Like, first and foremost, we need accurate information. And the reason people are panicking is, in large part, because we do not have enough information, and the information that we have is not always accurate. Moving on, here's the, the third thing that he said that he totally got wrong. Earlier this week, I met with the leaders of health insurance industry who have agreed to waive all co-payments for coronavirus treatments, extend insurance coverage to these treatments, and to prevent surprise medical billing. Oh, except that's also not true. They are not waiving treatment for coronavirus, which could be very, very, very expensive. They are waiving co-pays for coronavirus testing, which is a big difference. They're waiving co-pays for coronavirus testing, which makes total sense. Great idea. Wish President Trump would have said that instead of what he did say, which was totally wrong. But there were a few other pieces of news that he announced in this speech, some of which is good and some of which is not good. And considering that he is pushing these things, you would have thought that the stock market would have um, would have performed a little bit better the day after, but it did not, which is very interesting. So one of the first things he said is that he wants to provide emergency, quote unquote, unprecedented financial relief for sick workers, workers affected with the virus, which does make a lot of sense. And then he also said that he wants uh, to defer tax payments for those businesses that are negatively impacted by the coronavirus. And then the other thing is he wants immediate payroll tax relief, which he is calling on Congress for, 
as well as for the emergency financial relief. He wants immediate payroll tax relief for, um, well, he didn't say that this is specifically for those businesses affected by the coronavirus. He just wants payroll tax cuts across the board. Brad Palumbo had a good opinion on this the other day. He said that <clears throat> over in the Washington Examiner, he said that uh, this this idea that, that tax cuts will somehow help this is is pretty disconnected from reality and that this is mostly motor motivated by re-election juicing up the stock market before election day to make things seem like they're more healthy than they actually are it's not motivated by logic what he says is this doesn't help workers because it's the ones who are quarantined or laid off that need help which he rightly addressed in his proclamation about the financial emergency financial relief right but payroll tax cut is not going to help those people because the payroll tax cut is going to affect businesses and workers who are still at work and getting a paycheck. So, I mean, unless you're salaried, I suppose, then you would be impacted. But as far as the, the more low-income workers who are working on an hourly basis, that's not going to help them. And then from a public health perspective, of course, if this is an effort to sort of get the economy juiced up and going and entice people out into public spaces to movie theaters and restaurants and the like that's not really a good idea people aren't not going to businesses because they don't have enough cash in their wallets they're not going to businesses because they are afraid of the virus so not only is this a very very expensive measure because it's not being offset by any cuts in spending whatsoever in fact we're spending even more money to combat this virus we just gave you know billions of dollars to the cdc to fight this virus specifically so it's a very expensive measure and it is counterproductive in terms of public health just a really a really really bad idea all around and i really hope that GOP lawmakers do not fall for this because it's just a, a temporary and very expensive way of pretending everything is better than it is to increase your re-election chances. And that's completely irresponsible. Our first priority is making sure this virus is contained, which is why so many things are canceled. And that's a good thing. And then, of course, we have $23.47 trillion in national debt right now. And last year, we had a $1.1 trillion deficit. I don't think that we can afford an unnecessarily cut to payroll taxes. I know, I know. I almost sound like a liberal. I, But you know what? Taxes are necessary. We need taxes to fund the government and keep things going. You can't just do emergency relief across the board just because it's in your electoral interest. That's the wrong, it's a wrong thing, okay? It's a bad, immoral thing to do. And it's stupid because it's not targeted to the businesses that actually need it. And the other thing is, as far as the emergency relief to to businesses, which, you know, Trump said that uh, he is calling on the Small Business Association to provide low-interest loans to small businesses affected by the virus. It does make me wonder, having looked at closely how Trump has handled the quote-unquote relief packages that have been sent to farmers because of the trade war, it does make me wonder what sort of qualifications one needs to 
meet what parameters there are for somebody to qualify to basically get a handout and how broad that's going to be. I have a feeling that it's going to be incredibly broad. I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of abuse involved in that. And that's disappointing. But whenever you have a government program like this, especially when it's thrown together last minute, that's bound to happen. I wish there was a more well thought out local way to respond to this, maybe having local municipalities and even state governments just get a block grant and then decide how they want to help their businesses from that point. I think that that would probably be much more effective. And maybe that is exactly how uh, Congress would roll something like this out. But seriously, I mean, this whole payroll tax thing, it's literally Trump like handing Joe Biden a stick with which to beat him because liberals tend to make conservatives into caricatures as like these dumb, greedy tightwads whose solution for everything is to cut taxes, right? When in fact, there is much more to conservatism and supporting free enterprise than simply cutting taxes. But yeah, this is the stick that Joe Biden can beat him with. Oh, you know, we're facing a virus. So many things have been bungled already. Look at how the CDC has handled the testing. It's been awful, which we'll talk about that shortly. And and look at all of all of the things that he's gotten wrong and his his team is just all over the place and his solution of course is cut taxes you know it's it's like a really easy talking point to sell that trump just he doesn't know what to do and his only solution is just to cut taxes cuz that's the default for the caricature of conservatives it's just, oh, it's just, it's just a really bad idea all around. See virus, cut payroll tax. It's, you know, the memes write themselves. Before we get to the specifics in terms of the government response to the virus and some lessons we can learn from that, I want you to know that today's episode is sponsored, as I said before, by MyPillow. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, really does want you to have the best night's sleep. And if, God forbid, you come down with the coronavirus, you're going to be spending the next couple weeks in your bed, hopefully not in the hospital. Do you want a pancake pillow that hurts your neck and smothers your sweaty face? Or do you want a comfortable, fluffy, cool, supportive pillow that you can say, you know, I feel like garbage right now, but at least I haven't made my life worse by skimping on the things I sleep on and lay on while watching reruns of Seinfeld and eating chicken noodle soup. You can get great discounts on all MyPillow products on MyPillow.com by clicking on the listeners specials. Get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, bed sheets, pillowcases, even towels, and so much more. Even the dog beds. They make dog beds. They're super cute. Even those have a 10-year warranty. A 10-year warranty. And for 180 casters like yourself, Mike is offering a fantastic deal. The buy one, get one free for the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. And do not forget that MyPillow products, as I said before, come with the 10-year warranty. The folks at MyPillow don't want you to compromise on your sleep and be stuck with anything less than awesome. We've just been through daylight savings. Isn't that enough suffering in terms of our sleep? And... MyPillow is extending their 60-day money-back guarantee, so orders placed between now and the end of March will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through June 1st, 2020. 
Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener special for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza sheets. These are Egyptian cotton, by the way. It's long staple. It's very soft and durable and breathable. And they have deep pockets so they don't pop off the corners of your mattress, which is like the most annoying thing in the world. Anyway, buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST or call 800-506-2641 for great, great specials. That's 800-506-2641. Use promo code 180CAST. Let them know that we sent you. It only matters how you respond, and we are responding with great speed and professionalism. Our team is the best anywhere in the world. At the very start of the outbreak, we instituted sweeping travel restrictions on China and put in place the first federally mandated quarantine in over 50 years. Speed and professionalism. Speed and professionalism. The story came out in the New York Times just a couple days ago. The title is, It's Just Everywhere Already, How Delays in Testing Set Back the U.S. Coronavirus Response. The subhead is, a series of missed chances by the federal government to ensure more widespread testing came during the early days of the outbreak when containment would have been easier. This is a very fascinating, basically an expose on the numerous failures of the federal government to get on board with testing because of red tape. The Seattle flu study was operating in the Puget Sound area, and they were gathering swabs mouth swabs from people just all over the area to study the flu, okay? And when they heard about the coronavirus, the researchers at the Seattle flu study said, we should be testing for coronavirus. And so they went to the CDC and they were like, can we test for coronavirus? And then the CDC was like, talk to the FDA. And they were like, FDA, can we test for the coronavirus? And the FDA said, basically, no, you're not licensed as a clinical laboratory. You're just a research lab. You can't test people for the coronavirus. And this was like early in February, okay? So we have these people at the Seattle Flu Study saying, hey, we're here to help. We think this is going to be really bad. Let's start testing people because we already have the resources. We have this this database of, of people that we have swabs for. We need to start testing this and see how many people are already infected with COVID-19. And the government was like, no, you can't do that. And they have the the emails and the documents to prove that this is exactly what happened. Um, so part of the reason was because they weren't licensed as a clinical laboratory, which is a process that would have taken weeks and weeks and weeks to get done. The other part is that um, they weren't certified to provide test results to anyone outside of their own investigators. So they began discussions with the state government, the CDC, the FDA officials to figure out a solution. When the FDA finally gave the go-ahead for states to create their own tests, Dr. Alex Greninger, an assistant professor at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle, said he became exasperated in mid-February as he communicated with the FDA over getting his application ready to begin testing. This virus is faster than the FDA, he said, adding that at one point, the agency required him to submit materials through the mail in addition to over email. After doctors Chu and Lindquist, who were heading up this study, went forward with the testing anyway and discovered that COVID-19 was in a teenager, they were told very clearly by phone they were to cease and desist, stop testing. 
So even after they were like, hey guys, um, we found a case over here. Uh, it's important. Can we keep going with this? Because, you know, it's a virus and it's spreading really fast all over the world and it's going to be a pandemic. And the government was like, nope, you should definitely stop doing this important work. So against government orders, the Seattle flu study researchers worked their way back through samples in their freezer and found cases dating all the way back to at least February 20th, a week before anyone knew the virus was on our shores. A week before anyone knew the virus was on our shores. So it goes at least back to February 20th. As recent as Monday, this Monday, officials told them again to stop until they could be certified as clinical labs. About two dozen people in the Seattle area have died since then. So what's the lesson here? Well, as far as bureaucracy is concerned, there's almost always a sensical reason for establishing a rule, especially in terms of public health, right? You see the potential for bad outcomes and you want to prevent those bad outcomes. So it's like see nail, hit nail with hammer. You want studies, of course, to stay on track, you can't just get patients to sign up telling them one thing and then turn around and do something totally different. But that's not really what we're talking about in terms of the ethics of testing for coronavirus versus testing for the flu. I mean, it, it, it was verging on becoming a global pandemic. And indeed, at this point, the World Health Organization has declared this a pandemic. So you know, there's usually a pretty good reason for making rules, but those rules are usually very short-sighted. They're myopic. This is what happens when bureaucracies are allowed to make rules instead of just process things. And it's especially what happens when rules are designed by departments and then sub-departments and then teams within those sub-departments who have very specific fields of concern and may not be communicating well with others outside their purview or have a good understanding of how things figure into the big picture or into emergency situations like this one. This is just, this is like bureaucracy 101. This is why conservatives are so concerned about the administrative state and the growth of government. Because when you give government more power, you create more of these bureaucracies and you empower those bureaucracies to create more and more and more red tape and things don't flow the way they're supposed to there's no there's no profit motive in fact the 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 motivation that they do have is to get more funding for their department which is basically to create more problems for themselves to solve which means that they get to create more rules and bring on more staff and everything gets even more complicated from there this is why Conservatives are for small, limited government. State governments would have responded so much faster, it seems to me, like if the CDC didn't even exist at all. It would be like, Washington State, okay, nobody else is going to do this. We need to create our tests. Let's get going. Let's move. Now, expedite this. Seattle flu study, go ahead. You can do it. But because everything's sort of tied together and everybody's bound by these federal regulations and afraid of repercussions, everything just moves very, very slowly at an incredibly frustrated pace and at a pace at which it's costing people lives. I mean, not just because the red tape exists, but because it cannot be sliced through. It can't be circumvented or waived when it's clear they don't, they don't make any sense. That's the most important thing. Like I said, there are reasons for a lot of rules. 
But there are a lot of reasons to waive rules and get rid of rules as well. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to, to find a bureaucrat willing to loosen their grip on the controls. These people are in the positions that they're in because they like rules, they like predictability, they like order, they like the system. And they'd like to think that the way things are working is pretty good and that they're justified in whatever rule book giant binder is on their table. Yeah, as far as the uh, the speed and professionalism that Trump bragged about in his presidential proclamation, yeah, not so much. It has it has not gone well, folks. When I come back in just a second, we will talk about some of my thoughts about episode 53, which was my interview with David Marcus. Did a full one we actually did a few one eighty. Big change. Left. The light bulb That's where it crystallized for God, me. God just opened my eyes. To change my I mind. changed my mind completely. So for episode fifty three, David Marcus was kind enough to come on the podcast and talk about his sort of shift out of the New York theater community and like how he just dived right into conservative commentary and journalism. He he described his sort of 180 as half him changing his views and the other 90 degrees was sort of the ground shifting underneath him, sort of the way that Libby Emmons described. This was a really fun episode and I really encourage you to go listen to the whole thing because we talk about sort of a hodgepodge of different topics and some slightly more wonkier stuff about the future of the conservative movement and stuff. I thought it was a lot of fun. But as I was thinking about what I wanted to focus on for this particular segment, one thing sort of jumped out to me after I re-listened to this little soundbite right here. Not, so, not even so much the Democratic Party, but the New York City intelligentsia was beginning to embrace a much more radical concept of progressivism than they had been previously. And I think it's probably tied into that. Because I think, I, I think to embrace that kind of burn it down radical progressivism, you have to believe some pretty bad things about the status quo. So he's talking about how the theater community and the New York intelligentsia went from being liberal to being just sort of off the deep end, deep into intersectionality, and that basically becoming their guiding principle and becoming almost like very militant about it where you don't get a say unless you subscribe to all of this. And David didn't, so he was like, peace out, guys. <laughs> Same with Libby Emmons. The theater community made it clear that there are certain views you can have and there are certain views that you can't have. And if you hold the views that you can't have, they have this whole like set of terminology about how like, you know, uh, you know, they're they're getting triggered or like, you know, you're creating an unhealthy environment or that this is this is bad for my self being or my wellness. And you know, once you reach that point where it's like, don't say your idea in my presence because you're doing me some kind of harm. Some people go so far as to say violence. Yeah, you either shut up and go along to get along or you can't do it anymore. So that's a tough choice. What jumped out to me was this idea that the New York intelligentsia didn't just want to upset the status quo, right? They didn't just want to burn it all down and see chaos prevail like a bunch of jokers or something. They wanted to 
enforce a new status quo, a status quo that wasn't just, hey, everybody, let's just sort of get along and you can have your ideas and I can have my ideas and we'll just sort of, you know, rub elbows a little bit, but it'll all be fine. It's a status quo of you must conform to this standard or you cannot be a part of what we're doing. But those aren't the only people who necessarily affect change to upset the status quo, right? There was this moment in the interview where we were talking about people changing their minds from conservatism to liberalism and and vice versa. And he said this about his time sort of on the ground surveying supporters of uh, presidential candidates in 2016. I would say to people, like I always do when I'm out on the, in the, the election field, I'm like, so, you know, who, what candidates are you kicking the tires of? And over and over, people were telling me, I'm trying to decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, <clears throat> I was like, what, what? Like, that makes no sense. Like, explain this to me. And other people were hearing this too, and it took us a while to figure it out. But what it had to do with was just a real distrust of the establishment. Just this feeling that like, between the mainstream Republicans and the mainstream Democrats, like these were just guys wearing like different colored masks. And at the end of the day, they were just going to keep like continue, you know, doing continuing resolutions, keep free trade and globalism going to where it was like, you know, nothing was really going to change with either set of these people. Right. So often the catalyst, what motivates the change is a bunch of people who are just disgruntled with the status quo. They don't really have any clear idea of what they want to see. They don't have any particular vision of what they want to see from their government or what they want to see from their culture necessarily. They just know that they're unhappy with the way things are. And those people are used by people who are much more focused and dedicated and more ideological than these voters to move in and establish a new status quo. And the left, the radical left, is not the only group that is doing this. Anytime somebody is 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 gunning for the status quo, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, or the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and will vote for him again in 2020, anytime somebody's gunning for the status quo, it's not just to to burn it all down. And even if that individual, say, just wants to burn it all down, the people who are supporting that individual, more, it, it, it's almost certain that whatever vacuum is created by the destruction, they are planning to fill that with a new status quo and set up a new standard that everybody has to abide by and shape politics and public policy and even culture going forward from that point. And I mean, look at the past three and a half years. Look at all of the people who were unhappy in the Rust Belt having been, you know, their town sort of laid waste by people moving their factories overseas, just losing out big time and having a hard time adapting and dealing with the opioid crisis and all of that, people being very, very unhappy with the status quo, feeling like they're left behind. These people help push Trump into office. But more than that, more than just their electoral strength, the interesting thing to me is how they shaped opinion on the right going forward. Now we're we're looking at the the entire conservative brand basically being built off the particular problems of a particular 
part of the country and crafting solutions for those problems. You know, this is the the Tucker Carlsonian new wave of quote unquote conservatism, right? It's, you know, how do we deal with with lonely single men? How do we deal with making sure that people have a steady job? How do we deal with making sure that you can have a, a family that you can very, very comfortably support on just one income so women stay home? You know, how do we make sure that our manufacturing is protected from outside global competition? These are sort of the ideas that are driving thought on the right currently. You can look at Warren Cass and his American Compass. I think that's what it's called. American Compass is new think tank. And these are the things that they're talking about, even though, you know, a lot of these things are, are not problems that are shared by the rest of the country. They're very specific things to a, a specific part of America. It's a very large, very diverse country with a lot of different problems. But that's what we're looking at now. It's so interesting how a relatively small, not a tiny group of people, but a somewhat like small group of people who are facing these problems, forget their electoral influence, like the way that they have changed things around with the leadership of Donald Trump in terms of how we think and what policies you're willing to consider on the right is really, really interesting. I mean, we are looking at the entire conservative brand basically being built off of big government, big spending sort of protectionist solutions to problems faced in that particular kind of American town or American city. But I think uh, what David said a little bit later on in the podcast in terms of, you know, where things are going from here, uh, I think he had a, a good bit of insight here. You know, so these tensions are existing on both sides. I've seen so much change in the last three years. Um within the conservative movement that I wouldn't even dream of trying to make a prediction. And the only other thing I'd say is that I won't even predict where I stand a year from now because I'm open to ideas and I think things are changing so fast that you have to keep yourself open to ideas. Yeah, I don't know about this whole whole Carlsonian strand that's taking over on the right. I'm not I'm not into it at all. But I do think that he's right that you have to keep your yourself open to new ideas and things are are changing very quickly and like I said before you know it, it's not always about what the majority thinks because most of the time that there's no real concrete majority on anything I mean look at the 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 polling and how many times people contradict themselves even in one survey is really quite fascinating but I do think it is important to remember that even when people just want to go and turn over tables and throw over the status quo, you have to look at who's moving in behind that to fill that vacuum and establish this new standard and these new ideas that people are supposed to conform to. Because like I said, on the right, we're looking at this new, new sort of new right market critical strand of ideas and that's pretty much thanks to what happened in 2016 and Donald Trump. In a second, we are going to do a woke of the week and talk about Mara Gay, the woman who, if you had not heard, made a very fantastical statement on MSNBC the other day. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. 
Somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It, when I read it uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent $500 million on ads. U.S. population, $327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American $1 million and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. Don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. Brian Williams. Oh, Brian Williams. That's Brian Williams and New York Times journalist Mara Gay on MSNBC just the other day making a massive mathematical blunder. Well, needless to say, Mara Gay faced a an avalanche of criticism much of it hateful and full of vitriol on the Twitters. And having been on the receiving end of deluges of hate a couple times before, I feel her pain. She wrote an article in the New York Times about this incident where she got her maths wrong. And she tweeted it out and said, a racist Twitter mob came for me over a trivial math mistake. I'm not going anywhere. And in this article, she restates some of the racist hate messages that she got after the incident. One of them was like, here's a banana. There was another one that was like, oh, that must be your black girl magic. You know, another one said, this is why affirmative action is terrible. All sorts of really, really awful, just scum of the earth, bottom of the barrel sort of comments. Needless to say, it's evil and horrible. I will say that I have made math errors before. I have had to issue corrections uh, a couple times. One of them was like a decimal error. I wasn't off by a factor of like a million. Um, I was off by like a factor of 10 or something like that. And... Arguably, I've made errors even more significant for not being so obviously obnoxiously wrong. And I've apologized for that full stop. But in this article, Mara Gay goes on to sort of blame all of the criticism directed at her for, you know, a quote unquote trivial, trivial mistake, which being off by a factor of a million isn't a trivial mistake. It's, it's just, it was so obviously blatantly wrong. That's why she was getting such an avalanche of criticism in general. But blaming all of that on racism, which is what she goes on to to imply in her article saying her people have been through worse. Come on, Mara. Don't you you're you're better than this. And I understand that you're hurting and you're shaken up and I've been there not quite on the scale that you've experienced it. And you're a human being and you deserve to be treated like a human being and everybody should remember that there's more to you than this one mistake that you made. I am totally right there with you. But this idea that anytime you you face some criticism for something really obnoxiously wrong that you did, that you can sort of put all of that on racism and America's history of racial oppression I can't, sorry, I can't go there. I can't go there with you. I don't care how woke it is. I don't care how much the New York Times wants to push that sort of agenda, you know, along with their 1619 project. And 
part of the reason I have such a problem with this is that she's letting the trolls, the worst of the worst, define the entire crowd and the entire like bulk of criticism to what she was saying. She's letting the trolls define all of her critics. And this is a problem that I've had with a lot of other people too. You see the same thing with the, the pro-Trump MAGA crowd and the never-Trump crowd. And both of them, both sides have these extremes that are yelling at each other and getting up in their direct messages and saying all sorts of horrible, awful things. And people on both sides then take those comments because they hurt so badly, because they're so offensive, because they stick with you and penetrate so deep. They let those comments define all of their opposition. And then from that point on, it's like their perspective is completely, totally stained by what those trolls have said. It's incredibly, incredibly destructive. So obviously, we put the bulk of the blame on the trolls. But also, as journalists, as pundits, as anybody who is sort of a public figure, particularly anybody with a platform and a voice really needs to take a good long look at the trolls and then take a good long look at people outside of the trollery who don't who aren't talking to them specifically but are talking about the issues in general and then say do these really match up is this really what my opposition believe you know for the for the MAGA crowd is this really what all the never trumpers really believe about trump and for the never trump crowd or the Trump critical crowd. Is this really what the MAGA people are like? All, are they all, you know, quote unquote, dumb hillbillies, which is sort of the realm that like Rick Wilson is in and, and Tom Nichols and that sort of thing. So much of this is people letting trolls define the argument and define where people stand and who they are. It's so destructive. And I wish it would stop. So anybody, seriously, with a platform, take a good long look and say, am I labeling all of these people based off of what I see in my direct messages? Am I labeling all these people based off of the hate mail that I'm getting? If so, I need to reform the way that I'm talking about people because this isn't constructive. And it just leads to everybody's feelings getting hurt, everybody closing themselves off, and being open to those new ideas that David Marcus was talking about. Let's go ahead and uncork the culture and talk about my favorite new app. It's going to be legend. Wait for it. Skip the end. Daring. Have you been on TikTok before? Because if you have not been on TikTok, you should definitely check it out. So I was talking to this wonderful, sweet middle school girl the other day at church. And I was asking, you know, what she was scrolling through on her phone. And she's like, oh, this is TikTok. Because it looked really strange to me. And I hadn't quite seen an interface like that before. She's like, oh, this is TikTok. And I'm like, oh, okay, TikTok. Yeah, I've heard of that. And so she sort of scrolled through things and showed me, you know, her favorite people that she's following and who's popular and the types of things that people do on TikTok. And I just thought it was really fascinating. So I was like, okay, I'm going to download TikTok. I'm going to make an account. I'm going to figure out what this is about. And I'm going to learn some TikTok. So TikTok is a social media app 
primarily designed for people to create videos to popular music, like lip syncing, comedy, talent, pranks, dances. Dances are especially popular. So there's a, a couple, you know, there's there's several songs at any one time that are sort of trending that have dances that are very popular that people memorize and then do their TikTok with the dance and then another another person will do it and like millions of people will do it and the dance will sort of like evolve and have new versions and it's all just a lot of fun and like at least half of these dance videos are people in their living room or their kitchen wearing sweatshirts and like leggings or jeans and like doing these dances it's real people it's it's very much like unfiltered it it doesn't have that sort of polished luster that a lot of um accounts on for instance youtube have or that instagram have all of those have become very professionalized tiktok is not that tiktok is like old school old school old school youtube is what it reminds me of here's just a a, a little taste of what it sounds like that's renegade and there's a, a dance to it that i have tried hard to learn and i i can't quite get it i'll have to work on it a little bit more i will make a tiktok dance eventually this is this is new territory for me but uh here's another one that'll probably really get stuck in your head that i kind of like The dances are really fun. When I was in school, nobody knew how to dance. Like, nobody knew how to dance. It was just sort of swaying back and forth or the other extreme, which was like super obnoxious twerking and stuff. This is cool. Like, this is something that we should be excited about because although this this platform is like mostly popular with Gen Z, they've really taken it up. People of all ages are on it. Like, you know, there are Gen Xers on there who are doing these dances and it's the same dances that 12-year-olds are doing. And it's just kind of fun. It's just kind of one of those pieces of culture that transcends all of those demographic barriers and just sort of like brings people together and like puts a smile on your face. I think the actual motto for TikTok is make your day. And I think that that's really great. There's also some rappers on there, some pretty fantastic rappers. There's this one guy. Uh, he's my favorite. So I'm just going to show you just a little snippet. And then there's also this person who does sign language to to raps and other hip hop songs. Her tag is called Hands Don't Lie. But anyway, this this guy, this rapper, his name is Cool Ass Papa. Like Cool AZ Papa. Okay. Looks like the haters been working overtime, jumping in my comments. Okay, we gon' handle this right here. <laughs> they be like, okay, boomer, hey, yo, man, somebody come get your dad. But the funny thing is that the joke's on you, cause you wish you had my swag. Listen, I'm gonna keep it real, homie. It's so great. He's a Gen Xer, but there's all these kids on TikTok who, who tell him, okay, boomer, 
Because everybody apparently who has like even a little bit of gray hair and wrinkles is is a boomer. So this app has a one minute limit, kind of like Instagram. Although Instagram basically scrapped that when they came up with stories where you can basically just continue something for several minutes. But it has a one minute limit per video. So, you know, it may encourage short attention spans. I acknowledge that. But I I think it's... It's it's cool, okay? It's it's kind of fun. And you should consider being on TikTok because life is too short not to dance and not to laugh. So, I don't know. Jump in. That's all I have for you today. Please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already on your way out. And thank you in advance if you do. And please consider giving the podcast a review. Please give it a review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. Uh, just, it'll just take like literally like one and a half minutes and it helps this podcast out a lot. Aside from that, remember, it is a pandemic, but that does not mean that you need to panic. Stay calm, wash your hands, and for you, if you're listening and you're a young person and you think all of this is way, way, way overblown and you don't understand why everything's being shut down and it's really inconveniencing your life, I would just say really quickly that it is not about you. It is about the elderly population that is extremely, extremely susceptible to this disease. So just think about it that way. All of the people that you love who are over 60, especially over 70, those people are are very vulnerable, so anything, any steps that you take, any bearing with the situation, just be patient and remember it's it's not about you, it's about the elderly people that you love. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see. What I need, who I've got to in the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to in the middle of a struggle. Executive producer Lord, Kevin McCullough, music by Ricky Crop. What I need, who I've got to in the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.